Testing, testing. On two, three. Are we on? Welcome to our town. So, hello and welcome to the Aratown podcast. My name is Nick Byfield. I'm here with Noel Beggs. Uh, Noel has um, an extensive background in being a community member and supporting the community with a number of different hats. So I'm really pleased to welcome Noel. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, no, it's great to, great to be here. Sort of a little bit unsure about why you asked me, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll find out, shall we? Um, so my first question is always to please ask you to tell us your Aratown story. How did Aratown first sort of become to your, to your awareness um, and what was your first experiences of Aratown? Yeah, well, it's really hard to pin down my first experiences. I guess my first memory would be as a child playing beside the Arrow River. Um, go back even further, there's been a family photo emerge over the last few years and it's showing my father holding me as a, probably about a nine or a ten month old in the Arrow River playing right. in the river with the rest of the family. So, And that comes from, we're not our town people, but we're Southland people. I'm a fifth generation Southlander. Um, from farming background and my parents loved this area and sort of holidayed in Queenstown so I've got lots of memories of holiday homes in Queenstown and talk such time as my parents bought a, bought a holiday house when I was about 10 I guess 12 and that was located on Man Street on the road up to the campground in Queenstown where the big car park is now so invariably all our holidays in Queenstown ended up with trips to Aratown um, and that evolved as I got older I remember teenager motorcycling regularly up into Maystown and then getting driver's license and bringing mates out to go to the movies at the Nathan Eam Hall in Aratown. Yep. So, and then, yeah, progressed from there, I guess. And it's not too rude to ask, how old would that photograph be? What kind of year are we talking that you've got that yeah, first yeah, image? I don't, I don't mind saying that would be about 1962. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And is it possible to pinpoint exactly where on the river it is or is it too tricky? No, it's probably just down off Ramshaw Lane, actually, just where the river comes around and then be in there when you when you look here. Yeah. And did you have a holiday home here in Aratown, or was it a case of visiting lots of different places, <clears> as you say, around Queenstown? It was mainly Queenstown. Yeah, my parents used to rent holiday homes in Queenstown, um, and then, as I said, they they bought one. So yeah, and it, as far as personally, the, that's how we ended up in Aratown ourselves. Is once we had a family of our own and. We loved this area, and um, our boys were of the age, and we had a business change that gave us the opportunity to buy a property in Queenstown, because really, our town, this is early 2000s, was a little bit like Queenstown was in the 80s, really. And yeah. So, yeah, the attraction was, was really there. So tell me about growing up in Southland, whereabouts were you, say, your yep. farming background? Yeah, grew up in western Southland, Tuatapri, just couple of miles outside Tuatapri was a family farm that I grew up on. And then um, went away to uni after school, had a couple of jobs first, and then went away to uni at Lincoln. Uh, met Carolyn at Lincoln, and we ended up, after doing our RE for about three years after we'd finished our degrees, we ended up going back to Carolyn's family farm in Central South, which we still own today as well. And what kind of farming was that? Sheep and beef and a bit of cropping. that evolved into dairy grazing. Um, the farm now is a dairy farm, but it's not. It's leased out to a dairy farmer. It's not our. We were never dairy farming when we were there. Yeah, and that's happened to a lot of farms, isn't it? They they made that transition to dairy, didn't they? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's given 
opened up a lot of opportunities. Well, we're possibly a little bit the classic example, and there's a few people around Queenstown and Aratown are in the same situation that it's opened up a whole range of opportunities, and we're very lucky to be in that situation. So you say you bought a place in around 2000 here in Aratown? Yeah, 2002, we bought a cottage in Denby Street, um, which we still own as well now. But it, it's just been a great little place, and we absolutely love it. A little historic cottage there that had just been fully restored. Interesting background. It was a Scottish backpacker that had bought it and did the restoration, and we were lucky to buy it. And it's a sign of the times when we came up with the idea of buying a property in Aratown. There was nothing on the market. We, Graham Pape, the real estate agent, showed us two houses. One was a spec house, and one was this cottage that was still being worked on. And we were, yeah later came on the market a few months later and we were very very lucky to purchase it and saying that it wasn't a big bidding war or something because people just Aratown wasn't on the map at that stage too much for people buying yeah well i think i remember speaking to other people and and who bought around that time and everyone was saying why are you buying out in the sticks why are you out all the way out in Aratown?" you know because it just wasn't what was happening there and yeah Good foresight, I suppose, looking back now, and not all that long ago, really, sort of just over, well, 20 years, 21 years. Yeah, yeah, it was, I could say it was foresight, but it was really, you know, this is where we wanted to be, and it's, um, yeah, we were lucky to, to score that property, really, yeah. And we now find ourselves sitting in the doctor's house, so there's a bit of history here with this property. How did you come by this property, and what is the, the story behind the house and the grounds? Yeah, um, well, obviously, we were in love with our town and loved our little cottage, and, and yeah, it was still part of this business change that we'd had with the farm that we we could foresee that we would be moving away from the farm pre the classic retirement age we were going to have that opportunity and we could see that happening but our little cottage even though we love it to bits it's it wasn't really the of the size for us to move into um partly size wise and the other thing is we were quite keen to take on a project which effectively we did so it was about 2008, um, the doctor's house came on the market. Um, timing, maybe not the best, because it was just before the GFC, right. a global financial crisis. So that was pretty scary after we'd signed the line, dotted line, and then that happened. It got a bit nerve-wracking for a couple of years, but things came right. Um, we'd always admired the property. I think anybody that's been associated with Aratown has got memories of seeing this old house sitting outside Aratown and wondering, what it was. So um, it's the white weatherboard house on Centennial Ave as you exit town. Yeah, yeah, beside yeah, the golf course. Um, and we can remember, like, probably about the time we got married, we, or pre we got married, we'd put on the story, we got married in Queenstown, Carolina, and we'd both worked in Queenstown briefly before we went overseas. And we'd, you know, we'd always seen this old place and had a bit of a, you know, liking for the old place. The long term history of it, it's called the Doctor's House because the Aerotown Hospital used to be located just behind where the house sits now. And the house was built as the surgeon's house or the hospital supervisor's house. It was built in, the hospital operated from about 1880 through to 1915. The house here was built, the original building was 1895. Um, and subsequently got extended. The front two rooms that most people see as they drive past were added in about 1910. And then over the years, it's um, changed hands a number of times, but interestingly, it stayed as the doctor's house, mm. even though the the hospital closed in 1915, 
the Airtown doctor still stayed operating out of the house right through until there was a Dr. Ferguson kept operating out of here until about the 1960s. And we've talked to some local people that have memories of, of children going and to see the, see the doctor inside the house. So, And hence why it's retained the name. It's got nothing to do with our medical school. And is there anything remaining of the hospital on the land behind? No, not really. There's a um, couple of little huts or older outbuildings beyond the other houses that are located behind us now. Um, and they were associated with the hospital. Um, one of them was an isolation ward, I understand. And then just immediately behind our house here, there's still the original stables from the hospital were still standing here as well, which is our, basically our big garden shed now is what that's for. And is that wood or stone? That's wood. Right, yeah, okay. Because yeah. often you find the stables are still standing, but it's because they're made of stone and... Um... Yeah. yeah, no, no, interestingly enough, these, these are wood ones and they've managed to stand the test of time. And do you know much else about the history of the hospital, what kind of things it was doing? Is it easy to research that kind of thing or is it largely forgotten? Um, no, it's not largely forgotten. I, I'm no expert on it, but there's certainly a few publications um, being written, one specifically about the hospital and its surroundings. Um, also another one about Dr Thompson, who was the supervisor at the hospital, who lived in the house. There's quite extensive books about that. Um, and it's also mentioned in quite a few of the local history books. The Historical Society takes a strong interest in it, and they've got good background information if anybody needs it as well. So, yeah, the history is all there and all, all findable. Fascinating. So the reason I'm aware of you, Noel, is we met when I joined the Aratown Village Association back in 2018. Often told the story of how that came to be, that I'd just arrived in town and went along to the AGM in October and and I've got co-opted onto joining uh, joining the, the committee. So tell me about your history with the ABA. How did you come to, to get onto the committee and, and ultimately become the chair? Yeah, how I got onto the committee is probably not a lot different. Um, I'd always knew the uh, Aratown Village Association was out there. Um, we'd become members pretty much as soon as we bought our property in Denby Street because we felt it was a worthwhile thing to be involved with. Obviously, it was a lot smaller population base scene, but we were well aware of the work it was doing and what it was about. So after it had been, we moved up here ourselves in 2013, um, and it was probably the next AGM after that, or maybe the one after we'd gone along to, and similar to yourself, lo and behold, I ended up on the <laughs> yeah. on the committee. Um, and just, yeah, evolved from there, really. I took, a, took an interest in it. I, you know, that was the formative years of the wilding strategy I guess so I was quite interested in pursuing that angle of it and then um, yeah I ended up becoming chairperson um, and yeah enjoyed that for the for the time I was on there as well and I think you'll admit I was probably responsible for pointing a finger at yourself as well so it was all just encouraging my big thing when I became chairperson was to try and cover the demographics of the village better than what it was there was you know there was a good committee on there and no disrespect whatsoever it was focusing really well and working really, really well, but I just felt there was the opportunity to get a few younger people on the committee and ones with younger families, and yeah, yeah. So hopefully that's worked. Um, so who were some of the names and the main kind of people involved back when you joined, kind of early 2000s? Yeah, when I joined, uh, Russell Heckley was chairperson um, for the next couple of years, so yeah, and some of the same as Jean Britton was on there, Susan Milne, um, Susan Rowley, of course, it's just been past chair. So, yeah, some of the same names are on there. Uh, Martin Barrett, there's quite a few 
yeah, great committee members coming through. And that's probably the same year I joined or the year after was when Benjamin Teal joined, which was just a huge godsend. So with the knowledge and um, passion that he's got for our town as well. Yeah, and still on the committee. Yeah. What were some of the issues you were grappling with back then? Well, the biggest one, I guess, when I came on was the wilding situation. Everybody could see that the trees were slowly getting more and more established, the wilding trees. So there'd been various attempts at trying to trying to make movement with those. Um, so that was sort of the big one that we got our teeth into. Otherwise, it was just sort of one of the more stuff that was going on, a lot of village discussion around footpaths and lighting and same things that come up quite often. The Shaping Our Future process was underway, not under the... AVA at that stage it was occurring so that was a real strong interest with that one as well and that's been a really positive thing for the village to see that expand out and then more recently the AVA has taken that on as guardians of the Shaping Our Future report anyway and I think that's where the beauty of the community becoming involved whether that's through the AVA, the APBA, the Shaping Our Future report is just a really fantastic document to have in place and a guiding line and it's the ability to go back to the community on that to gauge what it is and interestingly enough to me the review that just happened recently the, there wasn't too much changed from the original report from 2017 it shows that the community at its core still has the same same values for our town. Yeah so I was going to say you would have been chair in 2017 when the first Shaking Our Future report was done what what was that process like and how did the report sort of come to be in the, the form it is? Yeah, I wasn't too involved because at that stage the AVA wasn't directly involved, but there was another committee running the Shaping Our Future, Susan Moore, David Clark, quite a few of the local ones were involved with that and they worked really hard to get it in place. Um, the original workshops that I did go along to as a community member were well attended and it was fascinating to see the interaction of people and how people's ideas came together for that. The strongest point, and maybe it's my interest, but the strongest point point of course is the heritage and that how that's being protected and hopefully will be protected going forward is, is key to a lot of what our town's all about. Yeah it's always a delicate balance isn't it to preserve the heritage respect it but still be a town that moves forward and progresses and adapts to the changes of the modern world. Absolutely yeah and it is it is all about the balance and we you know the way our town sits at the moment is fantastic town and getting the mix right as far as I'm concerned I think it's you know it's really positive. So you mentioned the wilding control. Obviously, that's kind of a hugely, hugely sophisticated volunteer organisation in terms of the money that they process and the work that they do um, as a group of the Aratown Choppers, but also getting the community on board. Tell me about the growth of that from like early discussions that there's something that needs to be done to how things have got to where they are now at being such a you know a, a huge project that that's logistically very challenging yeah and i mean as i mentioned when i first became on the aba that it had been discussed at different times but nobody quite knew how to approach it and specifically with tobin's face because that's as it is in everybody's face tobin's face yeah. and it's that was the one everybody was looking at saying oh what's going to happen here because the douglas firs in particular were showing up larches to an extent but the douglas firs really showing up and i wasn't too sure how to how, how it was to be handled um particularly with it being, it effectively is private land, albeit pastoral lease, but it's private land, so it's balancing what the landowners, holders required as well. But what was the, not the galvanising, but the deciding thing was getting the wilding strategy done, which Benjamin Teal 
put a huge amount of work into. Um, and we worked together on that one and, and got that one out and taking that to the community. And we had a couple of really, really well attended public meeting in the Nathan Ian Hall, just saying what the problem was, um, what we thought could happen with it if it wasn't tackled, what could happen with it if it is tackled. And then also the input from landholders and other interested parties that were involved. And it was resounding positive feedback at those meetings um, that yes, something had to be done and we had to move on with it. From there, the strategy was used for applying for funding. The ABA was really fortunate to get huge funding from Central Lakes Trust and Community Trust South. And then also funding came in from the government through MPI. So that allowed contractors to be employed and Tobin's face, as everybody saw, the, the wildings came out of there. And I think there's always controversy about it. And there was certainly a bit of grumble when the dead tree started showing. But I think if you look now in 2023, you're hard pushed to see those dead trees and you can see the colours there um, showing up beautifully. That's of course segues into the what happens next which um, as part of the strategy, the original strategy was that the trees we look at now, the rowans and the sycamores, they are wilding. Um, people need to realise that but my personal view is with a bit of luck they can be retained with a control method of some sort to stop them spreading elsewhere. The, the original strategy was to remove them in blocks over quite an extended long term period of time take a block of those out and replant immediately with a mix of exotic colour trees, non-invasive, plus natives. Um, I think current, yeah, current thought patterns may be to try and retain it in some way. I think the underlying message I, I often tell people is that it is, it is effectively private land, so it's got to be working with the landholders on this to, to see it. But once again, to me, the the autumn colours are our town, and our town gets so much back coming into it because of the autumn colours that it's, it can't be overlooked. Yeah, and I think in terms of the Mahi Whenua covenant that deals with Tobin's face, there, there is a sort of special case there for Tobin's face that means it doesn't get treated the same as other areas. Um, but certainly when I arrived in 2018 in our town, that was just after quite a large pocket had been removed of Douglas firs and I remember looking up and going oh my god what are they doing it's a disaster yeah um and then that was the first planting day I attended probably in the in the autumn um it would have been 2019 and we put in oaks and maples and all of those exotics which are doing reasonably well I think and now you can't really tell unless you look hard um for the the plant covers that there's been any work there done at all yeah, yeah, and it is a like it's a cliche, but it's short-term pain for long-term gain, is really what it comes down to with the removals of the wildings, and it's something there's. And I mean, I know you're probably going to ask me, and it'll come up as the German hole situation at the moment. And to me, it's all about a balance, and hopefully the colours can be retained in some form or other. Um, personally, I'm anti-larch just because I've seen what the wilding effect of them is, but they're a very special tree on that location as it sits at the moment so that's going to be something that's going to need balance balanced over time yeah they're coming into their glory period now aren't they yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. i always use that quote that the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago the second best time is today so as you say it is you know short-term pain for long-term gain and that 
growth doesn't happen overnight uh, unless it's a Douglas fir bat. Um, and you do have to be patient and think about it generationally that you're, you're planting trees for, for future generations and for the future benefit. And those pioneers that planted the trees on Buckingham Street, they certainly didn't get to walk in the kind of glorious avenue of shade, um, but they put them there for us, you know, like 140 odd years ago. Yeah, of course, and that's exactly what it is. And it's um, it's wonderful to see the work that the choppers are doing now in the in the planting days. And that's you know that the community buy-in from that is just phenomenal. It's just it can only be praised, and the work that the choppers do is just phenomenal and ongoing. It's it's a real balance now that they're even interestingly coming back round again to be removing some of the fresh growth of the wildings, which mm. is so so positive. And um, but the the planting days they're having is great and what I'd you know hope to see is that balance coming into it that there'll be a balance of exotic colour trees being planted as well yeah. as time goes on along with the natives. So I like to show up for fun bits and do a bit of planting um, but when I look at the project overall it's so daunting it looks like such an impossible task when you see the Douglas firs popping up like an early rash you know on a, on a hill face um, that really it's just an, a never-ending project of of constant maintenance and vigilance um, that I would I would never dream of starting to tackle. So I've got a lot, great deal of admiration admiration for those that that do every week kind of go up and do some work, keep an eye on it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been it's been fantastic. I I must admit myself, I haven't been very involved over the last two years. I just always seem to have had clashes on those days that the choppers have been working. But I I absolutely loved going up there for three or four years on a Thursday night and dragging a chainsaw up. Torpid Gully, which isn't the easiest thing to do, but yeah. it used to be same thing. I was absolutely daunted when we first started and thought to see these Douglas spurs slowly marching up the hills off the side of Torpid Gully, and I just thought this is never going to we're never going to be able to do this. But a combination of getting contractors in for the large blocks and then the choppers and the volunteers' nights working away, it's it's amazing the difference that's been made. So you left the AVA as chair at the end of 2019, I guess. And then Susan Rowley took over yeah. for a couple of years, or was it the end of 2020? It would have been the end of 2020 yeah. because we went through that um, period of Zoom meetings and right. do we or don't we meet and such like. Um, so yeah, it was the end of 2020. Um, it was deliberate. I was, you know, enjoyed my time on the AVA at all, but I've always been involved over the years with committees, and I, I'm a strong believer of only doing so many years and then stepping away and letting the you know, new committee members or an overlap going on just to keep ideas flowing. So, that's, yeah, I just stepped away purely for that reason, and it's been good to see it still yeah, taking along strongly. Right? Still trying, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's disappointing to see you go, of course, because you were so heavily involved in the ABA, and obviously when you're the chair, you, you do tend to be the, the keeper of all knowledge. Um, so I sort of appreciated that you wanted to step back from it, but then around that time, there was talk of building a crisis response group for Aratown. I was surprised to see you then sort of jump ship and actually become an integral member of, of that new group. So tell us more about that group. Yeah, I didn't really jump ship. I think I was dragged out of the water. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I was shoulder tapped for that one when it was um, setting up. Like it had been uh, discussions on it during my time on the AVA, um, but then I gained a bit of momentum after that under the guidance of emergency response Otago, which is civil defence effectively in the old terms. To get to get it up and operating, the, the, get a few operating in various communities around Otago, 
our town's just one of these. So it's called the Our Town Community Response Group. Um, we've got Zoe Pierce, who many people in our town know. Zoe heavily involved with the scout groups, along with a range of other things. She's chair of the Our Town Community Response Group, and the the group is a just a group of volunteers, really. Anybody that's keen to be involved are more than welcome to do so. So it's been evolving really over the last 18 months or so. Um, it's not full on. We have a monthly meeting, which is always limited to about an hour. So it's just, you know, bite-sized bits, bits to do. And the idea of the community response group is to have a community basis in the event of a major emergency happening. Um, for our town, we talk about the AF8, which is a big earthquake, overdue earthquake that everybody talks about. And that's probably the most likely disaster or emergency that would hit our town. We could have fires, flooding is less likely, but you know you never know what's what's going to happen. Or another pandemic, a more serious one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so the idea of the community response group is to have the ability to quickly establish a hub for the community to come to for information or to give information. Um, the community response group aren't first responders. We're not emergency people as such. We're not going to solve the problems. We're just there as a liaison point, and um, but to be ready to do that quickly at the drop of a hat if need be. Um, the current process, which is very close to actually purchasing equipment. We're just going through the funding application stage now so that it'll be, the hub will be at the community rooms, the rugby club rooms, and there will be self-supported generators so that we can have electrical backup, some internet backup, handheld radios so that we can coordinate around the, around the village in the event of something happening. But it's, it'll be a place for people to come to to find out how to get help, not necessarily to get help, but how to get help, or how they can help in that situation. And what we're asking people to do is go online, there's a site called Gets Ready, and if you register your household on that, and particularly if you've got any vulnerable needs, but also if you've got equipment or services or skills that you can offer in the, help, in the case of an emergency. So in the event of a major earthquake, is the advice to head to the rugby club or is it to stay put? What what should people be doing? The first thing is to stay put and make sure everything's okay where you are, really. And um, But then if you're wanting to find out any information in the event, because it's highly likely the internet will be down, power will be down, there will be no way of communication, so to then head for the hub and you'll find out that information or be able to give information to to help everybody else, really. And what are the sorts of things that you cover off in the meetings? What are the sort of topics of discussion that... To date, it's largely been just getting the community prepared as much as we can, trying to get the word out there. Um, we're working through the process of getting a brochure that will go out to every household as needed be. But it's really to hit social media as well. There's a Get Ready Our Town page, there's a Community Response Group page. But it's also that co coordinating with the Otago emergency response group guys, the employed staff, they come to our meetings and we do run through, it's probably a bit of a lofty term to say they're drills, but we do go through scenarios of things happening so that the group in itself knows, has had a little bit of preparation on how to handle 
people coming in or how to handle the different situations that may may occur. How many people are on the committee then that actually know what to do in the event of a disaster? Floating, but there's about six to eight people yeah. coming along to the committees. But I mean, more people are always welcome to, to come along as well to that. So you'd certainly recommend people going onto the Gets Ready website and ensuring that their home is registered and that... Yeah, yeah it's, that's critical that people do that and they can find that. If they can't just find that site by doing a Google search, go onto the Aotearn Village website as well because the links are all in, in there. And that ensures that if you've got any equipment as well that may be useful, chainsaws, generators, bottled water, um, that people know where that equipment is, a digger. Yep. Um, that might be needed to, yep. to help rescue people. Absolutely, all of those things and uh, you know, people's skills, obviously, we all know that our town's got a whole range of people living in our town that have got a huge range of skills, so it's just to get all that known so they can do it, because our town could well be isolated, but we're working on the basis that we'll be working with Whitechapel area and maybe you know around as far as Lake Hayes Estate as well, but if all the bridges are out, it becomes almost a landlocked area of one place. Yeah, and particularly if people are working and they're they're in Frankton or they're in Queenstown and it happens during the day and they can't get back, um, people need to have a plan. You know, children in school, they're on the other side of the river. It's in the middle of winter and the river's raging. You can't just paddle across. Yep. yep. Um, yep. Things to be aware of. It's all of those scenarios and, and one that some people don't really think about as well is like if a major earthquake had occurred, for example, on the Saturday of the Autumn Festival, how many extra thousand people were in our town that all of a sudden can't get out? It's, it's, it's ten thousand yeah. years than I think. Yeah, so it's yeah. to get you know it's to be able to cater for all those and have the systems in place to to do that. Well, and even in a normal day, um, our population can almost double in terms of visitors, um, and their people will have nowhere to go. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So being involved in the CIG and having these conversations all the time, does it make you more concerned or, or you anticipate it more likely that, that there will be an event or are you quite pragmatic about the, the urgency and the timing of, of what may be around the corner? Probably the pragmatic side. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen and none of us have got control over when that'll be. So it's no use getting wrapped around the axle and trying to, to make sure everything's absolutely perfect and spot on and prepared for it because you'll never be in that situation anyway. Do you have an emergency kit or box here? Not, you know, I tell everyone that you've got all the rations, but... <laughs> I don't know if I should answer that, to be honest, because I probably haven't got it. We've got it in bits, but not, not right. as such. Yeah, yeah. But presumably you would recommend that people have yeah, an emergency yeah, yeah, box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, go, I'll go and make one up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you be putting in that box? Water. First off, yeah, water and first aid and a little bit of um, non-perishable food. Yeah. yeah just get it by, but it's there. Because the river will be no good, presumably, because that'll be contaminated. That's, that's the risk you've got to take, mm. yeah. So when people say that an earthquake is overdue, what does that mean? It's basically when you see the, the reports of it, I guess, and the experts in places that know say that, uh, they talk about an AF8, as they're saying that a Earthquake of scale eight on the Richter scale, theoretically for the Alpine fault line through that runs pretty much through here is overdue by anything between twenty to thirty years. They say it's overdue, but but once again, nobody knows exactly when. But I guess from a 
statistical point of view, it's more likely mm. we'll get a big one sooner rather than later. Well, in geological terms, that doesn't sound too bad, 20 or 30. I thought it was around 70 or 80, or it's kind of pick a number, really, isn't it? 100 years is a drop in the ocean yeah. for the evolution of the planet. And if it's overdue, it's overdue, so... <laughs> yeah. They happen. Well, that seems a rather dim note to end on. <laughs> we better, better brighten it up. Yeah, what, what, can we, what can we do to, um, <laughs> to brighten it up? Um, did you spend much time at the Autumn Festival this year? Um, I was about, yeah. Yeah, been down and enjoyed it as per usual. Um, probably, what did I attend? Went down and had a look at the vintage car display because I'm a car car guy anyway. Um, for that one, saw a little bit of the parade, but then we were coming back and it was rugby. We wanted to watch at the rugby grounds on the Saturday, so we were back for that. Went to the Hyde and Fling on a Saturday night and had an absolute ball. That was a great night out. So, yeah, and then just enjoyed our town and seeing the people around and being out of town as it is during the Autumn Festival. How would you characterise the main changes you've seen in our town, not just over the periods you've lived here, but the periods you've been visiting as a, as a young kid? Really, in one word, it's just the population, the, the people that are about. But that's not a bad thing in my mind at all. It's great to, you know, have a vibrant, such a vibrant village and such a, you know, so many families and real mix of demographics across the whole, whole village, which is just amazing. But our town itself, me hasn't really changed too much the village center itself is yes there's more vibrant newer businesses but as far as the little village goes it's still got that feel and long may it hold it really and, yeah and in terms of the future of our town how do you see that evolving and developing what are some of the challenges what are some of the changes you think we'll see once again the population pressure is there i don't know how you can't stop population growth and it's you know it, it is progress in ways it's it's a little bit scary to see what's happened to the basin you know in my time that i've been associated with it just how busy it is now compared to what it was even or even 10 years ago like or you know 20 years ago when we bought our cottage in denby street our town was still just a quiet little village where the kids ran around and kids still can still run around nowadays of course but it's just that much more busier um as long as it's controlled and we keep the balance, that's the word I've said before, is the balance, and that's just the balance between the heritage and the new developments, the balance between the exotic trees and the native trees, the balance of busyness, I guess, is mm. how to how to retain it, because our town is special. I mean, we're passionate about it, but I also often talk to other people. As recently as three or four days ago, I, I drive the house shuttle to Invercargill some days, and invariably it's asked where you live and if I say Aratown and people from Queenstown which covers a whole demographic as well that we take in the shuttle and as soon as you say Aratown they just start praising what it is and how this week the lady said it's the jewel of the crown of the Queenstown Basin please don't let it change is what they said so it's to get that balance and keep it Great, well thank you Noel, that seems like a much more upbeat note to end, thank you very much. No, thank you.